We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Before we introduce our guest, first and foremost, I wanted to give a shout out to our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable.com. They're constantly dropping new courses, so you always want to keep an eye on what they have coming. Some of the new ones include a course on the Benko by Fide Master Dalton Perrine. Uh, Blitzbeast Camille Plikta has just released a course on the Trompovsky. And coming soon is the much-anticipated 1D4 repertoire by a certain Grandmaster Ben Feingold. Who knows? Maybe you'll even get to hear Grandmaster Ben Feingold back on Perpetual Chess soon. I also wanted to remind you all you can check out a list of my own favorite chessable courses, including my descriptions and rating guidelines. I'll link to that in the show notes. And also be sure to check out their vast free catalog over on chessable.com. Now to introduce our guest this week, uh, first of all, those of you who watch on YouTube, you probably figured out by now, uh, this one is audio only because my guest joined me by phone via Skype. He is 89 years of age, these days based in the London area from New York City. He's a U.S. Chess Hall of Famer. He was the president of the American Chess Foundation and shares some stories around that. He also was a successful corporate attorney and executive. Um, But of course, in our conversation, we primarily discuss his many chess accomplishments. Um, He is one of only two non-GMs to have a lifetime plus score in U.S. championships. That stat is courtesy of I.M. John Donaldson. And he's probably best known in the chess world for being the first game featured in Fisher's legendary book, My 60 Memorable Games. He was friends with Fisher in the early years, as you'll hear him discuss in the interview, had Fisher, a young Fisher, over to his apartment for blitz battles and held his own before Fisher got to be too strong. He is 10 years older than Fisher. And our guest, James Sherwin, uh, played in legendary interzonal in Porta Rose in, I believe it was 1958. He played Tal and Gligorich and Petrosian and Reshevsky, and he's just got so many stories. And what impressed me most in this interview is his absolutely incredible memory, both for events surrounding his chess career, describing playing in a world junior in Copenhagen like it was yesterday. By the way, it was in 1953. Um, And his memory of the chess games themselves. Our guest Jim Sherwin said he doesn't review his games 
very often, but he remembers the exact moves from many games that just came up in the course of the conversation. So an absolute treat to get this firsthand chess history. And without further ado, we will get you to our interview with international master James Sherwin. And we are here with the American Chess Hall of Fame member, International Master Jim Sherwin. He's had quite a distinguished career in and out of the chess world, and there is so much I'm excited to chat with him about. Welcome, Jim. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. pleasure. And we started chatting a bit before I had formally started recording, you were already saying, telling some stories that I wanted to follow up on. So you were saying, Jim, that although... Your Wikipedia page says you grew up in New York. You spent a lot of time in Vermont growing up. That's right, uh, because uh, in 19, well, it was 1940, uh, my my father uh, rented a place on Lake Dunmore in central Vermont for, for the summer. And we went up there and spent the summer in a little log cabin on Lake Dunmore where we didn't even have a well and we had to go to... We had to walk uh, about uh, half a mile to get water, but uh, it was a very lovely summer, and he liked the area so much that the next uh, year he went and he bought a house from a turkey farmer, which used to be an old inn. It was a 20-odd-room house where uh, they uh, used to... Uh, drop the luggage from the third floor uh, down the back of the house from a lift of some, you know, some kind of a trolley system. But anyway, it was a, an old farmhouse, and they fixed it up beautifully. And that was really the house that I considered my home for many years. And in fact, that's where I had taught myself to play chess because. Uh, uh, there was nothing else to do there. I mean, we, <laughs> there were, it was uh, was in a rural district where there were about ten people. Um, well, there were maybe ten houses with people in them, uh, and the nearest one was a city block away. Except it wasn't the city, of course. And uh, so we used to go there every summer. From my father was an English professor in City College, and so he had a long summer vacation. And we'd go up in May, and we'd come back in September. So every summer we did that, and uh, that was uh, that was a very nice time. And I I considered sort of that was my home rather than the apartment that we were in on a hundred on a hundred and sixth Street. Um, but uh, yeah, we even spent uh, when I was in the second grade, we went up there. And there was a one-room schoolhouse that I went to where there were all the grades, uh, one through eight, and uh, and one teacher uh, who had one eye, as it happened. <laughs> and uh, she had lost one eye on a, motor, uh, a bicycle trip to the West Coast from Vermont. And uh, she was a great teacher, and I really learned more in that year than I did uh, in two years in New York. And so when I came back, since they they were in a different part of the year, I skipped half a year because uh, that part was the part that they were teaching in the second grade. (laughs) So it was really quite nice. And I'm in Vermont, of course, in the winters pretty fierce place. Uh, the temperature gets down to 25 below Fahrenheit. 
and uh, so in 10 foot of snow. So we, uh, I sort of cherished that place. It was very lovely. And after I got married, we used to go up there every summer still, every weekend. Uh, we'd take the children and drive up there, and it was a five-and-a-half-hour drive. But we did it, uh, left Friday night and came back Sunday night. It's really uh, great. So, Jim, that's a that's an amazing story already. You, it strikes me that you've come a long way from uh, the farmhouse in Vermont. Now, one question I have is, so when you taught yourself to play chess there in the farmhouse, did you have anyone to play against? No, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was saying I had an uncle on Long Island who was... Uh, who used to play correspondence chess, and he had a beautiful chess set on a table, which I always admired. And uh, it was Dr. Levine, and uh, he was an uncle by marriage. He was married to my father's youngest sister, my father's sister, who was younger than my father. And uh, he lent me... Uh, he lent me some chess books. I mean, I already knew the moves, but he lent me the Nimzovich's My System, and he lent me Cambridge Springs in 1904. Uh, and I think he lent me the Wausau, the Wausau Tournament uh, book, uh, which was the Olympics that the U.S. won with with Dake and Fine and Hrushevsky and uh, Denker, I think it was, or Horowitz, or both. Uh, and uh, so I played over all those games. I had all the time in the world in the summer. And, uh, you know, I just spent the summer playing chess with myself, and I really essentially taught myself chess. Uh, it was really, I was one of the few people that didn't have a, a mentor or, a, you know, a chess, well, I I joined the Marshall when I was 13, 12 or 13, but that was the first chess club I'd ever had, and I never did have a, a chess teacher. And do you remember, so, how did you even find out about the Marshall, Jim? Well, everybody knew uh, what the chess clubs were. I mean, I uh, I guess uh, by that time I was in, I was in high school, and uh, I went to Stuyvesant down on who was actually down on 13th Street and 2nd Avenue. And uh, in the old days, so they've got a new one now, which is on the west side. But uh, in any event, uh, there was a very strong chess team at Stuyvesant, uh, which was uh, Larry Evans was... No, it wasn't Larry. It was uh, Elliot Hurst was there. And, uh, and, uh, and someone named Weitzman... Uh, there were, I think, and I forget who else there was, but there were a few other players who were respectable. Yeah, so that's how I joined the Marshall. Uh, they had a, I think they had a special introduction for poor young players. Only <laughs> you didn't have to pay too much, and and I won the Marshall Junior Championship at some point around then. So by that time, and I was playing. I was playing at Stuyvesant, and I was, uh, uh, you know, I I had some real people to play with. Elliot was a very strong player, even in those days. He was about my age. 
Yeah, and he went on to write a book about blindfold chess many years later. Um, That's yeah. right. He was a real expert. That was his magnum opus. So he was a real expert on blindfold chess, and it's very uh, it's very encyclopedic about the subject. But he was a he was an experimental psychologist, a professor of experimental psychology, and so it was something that interested him. Interested him. And he had a sister also named Marlise, who was also a chess player. In the days when I was at Columbia College, we had a we won the intercollegiate. Uh, Elliot and I, Elliot was the team captain and first board, and uh, and then I was me and Carl Berger and Francis Meschner and Ralph Vitale. We won the we won the intercollegiate one year. Uh, so in fact, we won it two years, I think. <laughs> Um, City College was the uh, main opposition that was uh, headed up by Larry Evans. By uh, Larry Evans, uh, but we beat uh, we beat City College in the in the match, and that was what won us the championship. It sounds like your memory is quite good, Jim. Well, I mean, <laughs> you don't forget the early things; you only forget the recent things, <laughs> which is just as well, of course, because one's career is made fairly early, after all. So I was a good player back in those days. Uh, you know, I won the uh, intercollegiate, uh, personal intercollegiate, when I was seventeen, and uh, I think maybe yeah, I think I was seventeen, and then I won the New York State. When I was 17 also. No, I won the intercollegiate, I think, when I was 16. And then I won the New York State when I was 17, something like that. So I was, you know, I was a promising young player, as it were. (laughs) But it seems like you were accomplished academically as well, taking your school seriously. Um, you, You know, you went to Columbia and then pursued law. Was there any period where you considered um, focusing more on chess? Not at all. Never did, uh, because uh, because I got married fairly early. I was 21 when I was married to Judy. And, uh, you know, and then we, well, she had her, she had, uh, she had some serious illness. And, and uh, then we had children. We had three daughters uh, over a period of time. So, uh, I always had to make a living to, uh, you know, to send the kids to school to help Judy, who was a writer and who wasn't making, you know, wasn't making a living by herself for most of the time. Later, she became a college professor, but uh, that was my first wife. uh, So we were married for 30 years, over 30 years. Uh, And, uh, you know, so I never... I never really thought about it. I mean, I liked practicing law. I got out of law school, I think, when I was 23, and uh, and uh, you know, and then I started. Uh, I had to make, and even before that, I had to make a living. So um, <clears throat> I was working. I was working all the time. And the choice of being a chess player had never even crossed my mind. But you still found time for so many U.S. championships. How were you able to to do both? Well, the U.S. championships were in the evening, and so I used to work in the daytime. And then I'd, uh, you know, if it were a weekday, 
and then I'd uh, play I'd play chess at night. And in fact, uh, even though it obviously didn't contribute to my preparation, which was in those days was all self preparation. There wasn't, you know, you didn't have machines and seconds and thirds to deal with, and psychologists and you know, and physical trainers and so on. But uh, at least I didn't get nervous because I was busy practicing law in, in the daytime and playing chess in the evenings. Uh, I can't say that I did any worse because of it. I might have done better. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did so you? I, mean, I always. Sorry, yeah, I always. Uh, I always uh, had to accommodate when I played in Puerto Rico. I took some time off from. I guess it was. Um, I guess I was already in practice at that time, but um, but otherwise, uh, you know, it was never. And then I got more and more involved in uh, in my in my business career, my legal and business careers, and so I didn't uh, I didn't have any more time for chess essentially, and I that was why. I, uh, you know, after the first eight championships I played in, I think I just stopped. Well, of course, I was also getting getting into middle age or I was 30-something and my my glory days were behind me. <laughs> so you mentioned Puerto Rose, of course, an interzonal tournament with Talk, Ligerich, Fisher, uh, Bronstein, so many others. Uh, mm. What are your memories of that tournament, Jim? Well, my memories are good. I mean, Bobby and I were the two U.S. representatives. I think that uh, I forget. Uh, uh, I think Rashevsky didn't want to play in it for some reason, or maybe I finished ahead of him. I'm not sure. But uh, in any event, uh, it was it was uh, in Yugoslavia. <clears throat> I had been. I had been abroad once before to play chess in the World Junior, uh, which was in Copenhagen, I think in 52 or 3, something like that, uh, when I was 20. And um, <clears throat> I had gone over there on the Queen Mary, actually. <laughs> I couldn't afford to go on a plane. And... Uh, and anyway, it was normal to go on a ship in those days. And it was the year of the Queen's coronation, in fact. I came to came to London first and then took the train to Copenhagen. But uh, I had very happy memories of it. I stayed in a, in a private apartment. Uh, they had people who were accommodating the chess players. And I stayed with Boris Ifkoff. Uh, it was the, the two of them were, two of us were staying in that apartment with the family. And so they gave us breakfast and maybe even dinner occasionally. And, uh, and Boro was really a lovely person. I mean, we were friends for years, uh, although we never hardly saw each other, but, uh, he, he didn't speak, he didn't speak a word of English except for cowboy. I think he, he's used the, he knew the word cowboy and <laughs> prairie. And, uh, but we had uh, schoolboy French between us, so we uh, managed to communicate in French. And then we used to take the bus, I guess it was, to the 
uh, what was it called, Rathausplatz, which is the center of uh, Copenhagen. It was being played in the newspaper, the Tugblad or something, offices. And uh, we played there uh, in the preliminaries and then in the finals. And in fact, uh, I didn't do too great in the tournament. Uh, I finished, I think, unbeaten in the preliminaries, although I should have lost one critical game. But uh, but I beat Larson, and and uh, and then the finals was won by Daga, who was a relatively at that time unknown German player. With uh, I think second was Pano and uh, Olafsson and uh, uh, Pano Olafsson and Ifkoff, I guess. And then the four of us tied for the last were Penrose, who was later winning the U, the British Championship year after year, and uh, uh, and I think Larson and uh, this the the uh, uh, the Swiss player who was Keller, and uh, and there was one other one there, but I don't remember who that was. But in any event, there was a it was really a very strong tournament. But I beat Ifkoff in the last round, which was in the brilliancy prize game, which was a very lovely. A uh, very lovely attacking game. So, even though I finished tied for last with three other distinguished grandmasters, as they became, or at least two of them, three of them did, uh, the other one uh, was that uh, I, I, I mean, it was nice to beat Ifkoff, and I beat Larson in that tournament. But I lost to Pano and Daga and uh, and uh, Lobson. Uh So. It was a tough struggle. I was unbeaten in the preliminaries, but uh, but I couldn't. I, you know, I just wasn't up against the world's great players at that point. It was my first real experience of it. Well, that's not true because I played in the U.S. Championship, I guess, before that. But uh, so I played Rushevsky and all the American players. Um, but it was still a very tough field. And I don't know which which legend to ask you about, uh, Larson or Ryshevsky. Do you have uh, particular memories of uh, of either one of them away from the board? Well, I never was a great friend of Ryshevsky's. I mean, I uh, I always thought he was a little, you know, a little wrapped up in himself. Uh, I shouldn't say it if someone was no longer with us, but uh, yeah. So I, I, uh, you know, I have a, a famous story about Ryshevsky, who with Evans was vying for first place in one of the U.S. championships, and they had a couple of rounds to go, and Ryshevsky was playing was playing me and somebody else, and Evans was playing some other people, and Ryshevsky said, "Well, I've got." Uh, you know, I've, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come out ahead of you because, uh, uh, because uh, you know, I have a better field to play, an easier field. And Evans said to him that Sherwin was likely to be dangerous, and you might even lose to him. And Ryshevsky said, "No, nah, this was in the elevator, and I heard it." He said, "Not in a million years." <laughs> so uh, then. Uh, 
you know, I played Ryshevsky and I massacred him. Uh, <laughs> a famous Samish attack. And, uh, you know, I really rolled him up. And, uh, and then I uh, got in another elevator with Ryshevsky and I said to him, how time flies. That win must have felt pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it did, yeah, I really, because I never, I didn't have a good record against Ryshevsky. I lost to him. Uh, you know, I drew with him, I think, once or twice and beat him once. And, and then... Uh, I don't know if I even drew more than one game, but uh, in any event, I lost to him three or four times. So it was uh, it was a gratifying win. When we come back, we will hear I am Jim Sherwin's first memories of Bobby Fischer. And we are back. And Jim, you're a bit older than Fisher. Um, what are your first I'm memories? Ten years older. Ten yeah. Years older. So what yeah. are your first memories of, uh, like, I'm guessing you first saw him somewhere in New York? Yeah, well, I mean, we used to uh, play in the Marshall Rapids, which I would win with some frequency. And, uh, um, you know, and then we played together. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I think it was uh, it was probably in Chicago or somewhere in that tournament. And then he played, I think, he may have played in New Orleans, uh, which is a tournament, the Open, where I tied with Bisquire, but Bisquire won an untie break. And then uh, I played with him in Montreal also uh, in the Canadian Open, uh, which was in probably in 56. Uh, and uh, so, and then and we used to play uh, Blitz and Fisher. Uh, you know, I would hold, and Fisher would come over to my house with Regina, his mother, and uh, and he would play blitz all night with me. And uh, so, you know, I used to probably hold my own pretty much in those matches, uh, maybe coming out one or two after 50 games, I'd be one or two games behind. I may have beaten him on some of the occasions. He was still, you know, he was still probably at that time... 13 or something. Uh, but he used to come over with some regularity because I liked his mother and his mother liked me. And we'd sit there and he'd uh, straddle our bridge chairs. He'd, he'd sit on them with the back of the chair facing him and uh, sort of straddle it and reach over the chair to move the pieces. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we were good friends, actually. And then we... You know, although I was 10 years his senior, but we got on very well. And then uh, uh, in Puerto Rush, of course, we spent the time, uh, we spent some time together, although, uh, you know, the Russians accused us of my throwing the game to Fisher because I got into a drawn rook and pawn end game with, uh, I guess it was with a the bishop's pawn and a rook or something. Maybe it was a knight's pawn. And uh and it was an elementary draw, but I was it was the third the third session of the thing and I was worn out by that time and and Fisher you know, complicated it and I didn't know the book line that would have drawn, 
You've just got to know that as a routine matter. And so I messed it up and lost, and the Russians said that I threw the game to him. But, uh, you know, but we were friends for years. I mean, I, because Bobby was perfectly, uh, was a lot of fun in those days. I mean, he was a happy kid, and he was, uh, you know, well, maybe he wasn't happy. I don't know, but he was flowing over with chess, and he was, uh, he had his own peculiar sense of humor, and he was a normal, he was a normal person. It was before he, you know, became deeply schizophrenic, uh, although, of course, uh, uh, schizophrenia normally manifests itself only in the early 30s. So uh, in your early 30s. And so he wasn't yet uh, a full-grown, uh, you know, uh, a full-grown schizophrenic in those days. He was just a normal, a normal kid who loved to play chess. And so we were very, we were good friends. I, I, I didn't know him in his later incarnation, particularly, although I did um, represent him legally in some matter after, after he won the world championship, just passingly. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, I have only the fondest memories of Bobby, and the whole thing was a was a terrible. Uh, a terrible tragedy as far as I was concerned. And when you represented him after he was already world champion, did you already notice changes in his personality? Well, I mean, the thing that I represented him on, uh, which I did not really, uh, you know, I think the rules are such that I shouldn't go into any detail about it, but uh, certainly it was... uh, it was uh, a potential lawsuit against uh, the guy who was filming the right. who had filmed the thing, and so obviously, you know, it was something that uh, that uh, was not a normal type of process. And he uh, he wanted me to uh, accuse the guy of treason in the lawsuit, and I tried to explain to him that treason was not uh, a civil offense. Uh, it wasn't something that any civilian could just bring a suit about. And uh, so I couldn't really do what he wanted me to do. And so I couldn't represent him in the case. Okay. And yeah. and were you surprised when he didn't defend his title in 1975? Not, uh, no, I wasn't. Because by that time I knew, you know, that the thing that the schizophrenia had developed substantially and that he was, though his chess was still probably pretty good because schizophrenia doesn't stop you from playing chess necessarily, but it stops you from making the arrangements which enable you to play chess. So, uh, you know, he was so tied up in all of his, uh, his problems, his mental problems, that he couldn't really sort the whole thing out uh, with uh, playing Karpov, and I didn't think that he was going to be able to overcome those difficulties, which already had started manifesting themselves in the Reykjavik match. Right. Uh, you know, so the fact that the Reykjavik match went ahead as it did was a miracle in itself. 
Yeah, were you in touch with him at all during the Reykjavik match? No, I wasn't, because I was in Belgium at the time, or at least I was in the process of going. I was running a business in Belgium, U.S. multinationals business in Europe, and uh, so I was up to my ears in business stuff, and I didn't have anything to do with chess at that time particularly, except I did play in a few Rapids tournaments in Belgium, but that was that was about it. But yeah. I'm guessing, you know, it's not called the match of the century for nothing. Did you feel the sort of outsized impact that it had compared to other chess events? Oh, of course. I mean, it was on the front page. I was subscribing to the New York Times when I was over there, and I was on the front page all the time. It was a major event, uh, you know, a question of uh, Kissinger calling him up and Slater finally arranging the 50,000-pound payment to put it over the over the top. I mean, it was uh, I followed it very closely, and I obviously... I was following the games very closely, or the non-games that started out. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and I was, of course, rooting like crazy for Bobby because uh, not only because of the U.S.-Russia thing, but also because he was a friend. Yeah, it must have been a somewhat surreal feeling. I mean, this kid who who used to come to your apartment <laughs> that you've had these battles with and held your own with, and now here he is making global headlines. Yeah, well, I mean, on the Blitz side, of course, I knew that he was already eclipsing me because uh, uh, because in Montreal, we used to play 10-game matches, the first one to win 10 games, and he won 10 in a row in Montreal in a tournament where I finished probably ahead of him because I was in, I played Larry in the last round and lost. Uh, I had a chance even for first place in that tournament, but... Uh, which was a strong tournament, but in any event, when that happened, I knew that Bobby had a great uh, had a great future. I had beaten him, you know, I had beaten him twice in the log cabin tournaments uh, or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, you know, they were log cabin tournaments. There was one very nice game, which is which is in the collections, which I beat him where he missed a maiden four, missed a beautiful maiden four. And I managed to catch him in time pressure, but uh, and I beat him in some other log cabin event where I can't find the score, but uh, where he just uh, got into time pressure in a queen and a drawn queen and pawn end game, and I, uh, you know, I managed to put him over the time limit in a drawn in a drawn position. But then when he played that first game against me in the game in his book, the first game in his book. You know, he actually outcombined me, which something which was something that that uh, I I didn't think anybody could do in those days, and uh, you know, so he saw one move further than I did at least, and he played a lovely game against me and beat me, and that was when you know when he was finally coming of age, actually, That's and then that. he played he played a beautiful game against me in the in the next U.S. Champ- Excuse me. In the next U.S. Championship, which he won, I think when he was 15, uh, which was that I was black and a Sicilian, and he played Queen F1, which was a queen sacrifice, uh, and it was really, uh, it was really a very lovely game. So you know, from that point on, I really, you know, he was just so he was just too good. 
Uh, and was there a moment where you realized, Jim, like this guy could be world champion? Who, me? Oh, about Fisher. Was oh, like, Fisher. Yeah, I thought he had a good chance. I mean, he was, you know, well, I followed him in his Curacao tournament where, you know, he had a hard time, but where the Russians certainly colluded to uh, draw games and not wear themselves out. And... uh I thought Bobby uh, had a real had a real chance, and then when he started in the candidate, you know, he when he started playing those matches uh, with uh, Lawson and Taimanov and uh, Petrosyan and uh, so on, uh, he was obviously tremendous. Uh, and even though he had a, I think he may have lost to Spassky a couple of times, but. Uh, I thought he had a good chance against Spassky. And so you were I, right. <laughs> I, yeah, I was right. But, uh, yeah, it was very gratifying, I mean, you know, to have played and beaten the would-be, the, the world champion to be. I, I thought I had made my mark. <laughs> and, of course, he's not the only world champion that you've played. Petrosian, Tal, uh, what are your memories like of uh, of, of those encounters? Well, the game with Tal was the last game in the tournament. Tal was winning Porter Rush, and uh, <coughs> I had weight against him. So I think he did he did have to be sure that whoever was, who was trailing him wasn't going to catch up. But after he saw that that was going to happen, he wasn't exactly, you know, trying to kill me. He wasn't taking too many chances, and I had an even position, so... It was okay. He played some opening innovation against me, which was H6 in the King's Indian uh, fairly early for Black. But uh, with Petrosian, I lost to Petrosian twice in the uh, in the match in Portorush. I had a good opening, actually. I was Black in a Queen's Gambit accepted. But then I foolishly got my Queen, moved my Queen from the Queen's side to the King's side, and I you know, I was lost after that. Uh, <clears throat> and then I played him again when I came back to chess momentarily to play in Lone Pine. I played him again with uh, in Lone Pine. I think I was, I may have been black also. But in any event, he just ground me down. It was just uh, too subtle and too good for me. So, you know, Petrosian was a great player and it was... Uh, he could squeeze something out of nothing, and he. But uh, in the case of the Butterish tournament, I should have, I should have drawn that game at least. I had an, I had equality, even though he played some new early version of Queen E2 in the uh, Queen's Gambit accepted, and I didn't know it. It was fairly new at that time, or even original. But uh, I got a good game in the opening, and then I, I made this one mistake. So he that that just cost me the game, period. Whereas the game in Lone Pine, he just ground me down. Uh, yeah, Jim, I'd but, like to hear more about Lone Pine in a minute. But first, I, I've got to ask you, like, I'm just dazzled by your recall of the specific details of these games. I mean, obviously, you're playing Legends. Have you played through these games frequently? Or do you just, are they that indelible in your mind? <laughs> Well, I'd say I've played the Reshevsky game over three or four times, and, you know, the um, <clears throat> the games with Fisher, I've certainly played them over at least once, and in the case of my draw with them, I've played uh, <clears throat> with 
which was a good game, actually, with some opening stuff by me, which I had prepared, although he laughed at it. But, uh, you know, I played them over a couple of times, but, I mean, those are games that are important games. I, of course. I remember them, uh, to some extent, at least. I, you know, I'm not sitting here playing over chess games, but I am... I'm thinking of writing a memoir book, but I'm not sure I have enough to say. Oh, I but think I certainly got... have a lot of games against good players. I have 50 games against good players or beautiful games, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking of doing that. Uh, I'm talking to John Donaldson about it. Oh, kindly, great. finally agreed to uh, annotate the games with a, with a machine. With an engine. I but, was going to uh, ask you if you ever turn the engine on when you look at. That. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're looking no, at the game. No, I don't so have long. an. I don't have an engine actually. So I mean, you know, I have an, a computer has Fritz in it or something, but I don't have an engine. I'm, I'm no just engine beyond but, that. No. But you still tied. You you won first in a rapid tournament uh, over there in Great Britain a few years back at uh, 86 years of age, right? <laughs> Yeah, I may have done that. That's, that's right. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, when I was in my 70s, I think it was, well, I'd, let's see, I've been here 23 years, and this was while I was here. So it had to have been probably in my 70s, early 70s. I almost won a very strong tournament with four or five strong grandmasters in it, and I just botched up the last round out of sheer tiredness. But uh, I could have... Easily won that tournament. I beat Rousen and Arkel in that tournament. Wow. And, you know, are you so, someone who watches what you eat and exercises? What are your secrets to longevity, Jim? <laughs> Just good luck. I have good, maybe good genes. I don't know. My mother was an athlete, but uh, I, uh, you know, I've I've always been very uh, knowledgeable about uh, <clears throat> about the. You know, the consequences of what you eat, and you know, and the dangers of uh, the dangers of pesticides and stuff like that, and red meat, and so I've always uh, I've always been a healthy person. I mean, I I worked for I think I worked well. I worked from the time I was twenty, maybe twenty. Two or twenty-one until I was eighty-five, and uh, I'm still working even. And uh, and I was almost never off a day of work. I think, aside from aside from donating blood sometime in my twenties, late twenties, where I had low blood pressure and I donated blood, and you're not supposed to do that. And I passed out for a few days. But aside from that, I don't think I've missed a day of work in 50 years. Wow. I was always a healthy person, but I don't uh, I do not do any exercise. I didn't do any exercise uh, to do what you're supposed to do, but I didn't do it until recently. I've started, I've got a pool here and I swim every day. Okay, so I'm going to stop nice. exercising now, Jim. You've, you've, <laughs> you've convinced me. No, it's good for you. I no question about it. I really enjoy the pool, but uh, but I didn't. Uh, you know, I just didn't have time to exercise. And in my day, you weren't. Uh, you know, people are exercise fanatics now. And in my day, no one ever heard of such a thing. I wasn't in a gym until 
you know, there was a gym at Columbia, but I never went to a gym in my life. We will be right back to hear more stories from I Am Jim Sherwin. And we are back. Well, Jim, I want to hear more about, uh, as I mentioned, Lone Pine 1976. So I read that this was the biggest open tournament of all time at the time that it happened, and that the aforementioned Petrosian and Smyslov were both last-minute entries. So I'm curious, I mean, obviously, hearing about the games themselves is a treat, but do you remember, like, when you found out they were playing? And, I mean, there were so many uh, world-class legends and also young American legends, uh, like Fedorowicz and uh, Michael Rode in that tournament. What are your memories of Lone Pine? Well, I I mean, it was uh, an interesting setting. I uh, I drove there from, from, I don't remember how I got there, uh, <clears throat> but uh, my memories are that I played uh, uh, um, oh, um, during a blank. Uh, who was the other American player there, beginning with an S? Uh, uh, it was a commentator. Sarawan, of course. Sarawan. Oh, absolutely. yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, ahead. so I was sorry. So I was playing Sarawan Bloodsoul Night, but, you know, I couldn't hold my own with Sarawan. I was, uh, I think, after playing 50 games or something, I would be three or four games behind. But I could still play pretty good Blitz. But, I mean, Shamkovich played a brilliant game against me on the white side of a on the white side of Escavenigan and that tournament fairly early on, and that took its wind out of my sails. Then I lost to Petrosiano, so, uh, so I think I finished with an even score, or pretty, something close to an even score, but uh, it wasn't uh, auspicious, that was for sure. I was already past my prime, and I hadn't played any serious chess for, you know, for something like, seven or ten years I don't remember so I was sort of I was sort of out of it and I didn't uh, by that time theory had become much more important and I wasn't uh, you know I hadn't kept up on my theory because I was working all 24 hours a day I really had a busy business career at that point I was you know doing very well and on the not on the legal side but on the uh, business side Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Nydorf was there as well. What, do you have any particular like? Well, how were you spending your time in between rounds there? Well, I was playing blitz with Sarah on oh, right. the time, <laughs> nonstop. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was really nonstop. Nydorf, uh, <coughs> I played one blitz game with Nydorf at the Manhattan Chess Club uh, during that tournament, and Nydorf played in there, and uh, and I lost to him in a tough uh, tough end game. But uh, I liked Night Off. He was fun, but I never knew him very well. I mean, that was the only occasion that I actually met him in the flesh. And Fine came back and played in that tournament, and I think he may have even won it. Uh, but uh, that was his only appearance, his sort of revivification on the chess, on the chess scene when Fine came back and played with Night Off. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I never knew Fine very well either because he was before my time. I mean, Fine was, you know, was in his ascendancy in the in the forties, uh, and I was, uh, you know, I was ten years behind that. Okay, and what about the well-known authors like Reinfeld and Horowitz? 
Did you know that? Well, I knew Horowitz very well. I, I knew Horowitz very well. I played him a couple of times. Uh, I had, uh, I think, two draws with Horowitz. But um, one of them was in Milwaukee in a very exciting game. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Horowitz was past his prime when I was around. He was really just the author or the editor of Chess Review, Chess Life. And... Uh, you know, he was uh, he was sort of a raconteur, and uh, not uh, I didn't think he was terribly strong anymore, but uh, he was okay. He was a solid player, and uh, you know, and had a lot of talent. And uh, Reinfeld, I'd met, but I didn't know him very well. He he came to the Marshall once at a blue moon, but uh, it was I was after his time. And what about uh, Irving Chernev? I mean, I know he's not a player of of your stature, but a legendary author. Yeah, no, I I may have met Chernev. I don't remember Chernev at all, really. Uh, I mean, of course, I knew his books, but his books were amateur books. They weren't books that I was interested in. I mean, I was, you know, I was subscribing to uh, to the Hungarian uh, the Hungarian yeah. informant. Uh, well, it was not an informant. It was uh, the Hungarians published the Russian championships in those days. And I used to subscribe to the Hungarian chess magazine through Bushki and uh, through Bushki's shop. And uh, that way I could follow in Vermont, I could follow the, you know, the tournaments, uh, the Russian chess championships and those you know, those were sort of my training ground when Boleslavsky and Bronstein were, you know, were in their ascendancy. Wow. Uh, and, then, and then, Jim, you became the president of the American Chess Foundation, helped support American professionals. Um, how, did, how did that come about? Well, I think that... Um, um, <clears throat> I think that... Um, uh, there were a group of uh, there were some people in the Manhattan Chess Club who, uh, you know, who were uh, who were interested in supporting Lushevsky <clears throat> and supporting American chess. And I think they appointed someone named Wallach. I'm, I'm a little dim on this subject, but uh, but Wallach was the guy who was the president of it. And he was getting old and he wanted to retire and they were looking around for somebody that had some business and chess experience. And I happened to be, at that time I was a lawyer, I think, probably. And so uh, I agreed to be president of it uh, because I thought I could do some good things for American chess. And Alan Kaufman, uh, fortunately, agreed to be the executive director of it. And so for years and years, and maybe it was certainly more than 10 years, he and I, I was the president, and he would run it on a daily basis and call me when there were, you know, major things to be decided. And we did have a policy of trying to support American players and of bringing, of trying to bring Russians over to to the United States. The Cold War was in full ferocity at that point, and so... uh, we uh, we managed to bring Goko over, and then we uh, brought over Kamsky at some point, or at least Alan organized that Kamsky would defect when he came to the New York Open, 
And uh, actually, Kamsky, uh, you know, when Kamsky disappeared after the New York Open with his father, uh, which had been coordinated with the uh, with the FBI and the CIA, uh, he disappeared into our house in Princeton. Oh, wow. It was uh, with my second wife, Hiroko. And uh, so they lived with us for a couple of uh, weeks, and Kamsky had never been in a supermarket, and he was, <coughs> you know, he was unaccustomed to United States activities in general. And there he was, uh, you know, playing blitz with me, and uh, five-minute chess, as it then was, and uh, and all the headlines were had him on the front page, so <laughs> nobody knew where he was. So it was really very funny, and. And I liked Kansky. I mean, he was a nice kid also. He, at that time, I think he was 13. His father was a real, you know, was a dubious character and, you know, and really tried to dictate Kamsky's life. And Kamsky was very, was very uh, docile uh, in connection, you know, with his father's every word. But, uh, but eventually he spread his wings a little bit and got away from his father. And Kamsky, of course, turned out to be a fine player. He was even in those days. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, I couldn't hold my own with him. He was just too fast. So he used to, because by that time I was no longer a serious chess player, but he used to give me odds of one minute to three or something like that. He'd play the games in one minute and I'd have three minutes. And so I had some chance of beating him once in a while. But he was very, very fast and very strong and very nice. I live in the next town, town over from Princeton. I didn't know that little bit of uh, Princeton chess history. <laughs> yeah, well, there were some chess players in Princeton. I mean, Wilder was there, but I never, I, I met him when he was there, but I never, uh, I never had any serious in, interface with him except, uh, I did play him two games when I was uh, doing hedge funds, which I still do. But I mean, Wilder was uh, had formed his own his own hedge fund, as I recall, uh, and I played him a couple of games then, and even drew one of them, where he was dead lost. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so but anyway, the Kamsky thing was was sort of one of the. One of the nice things about the American Chess Foundation, but we did good work. I mean, we encouraged Native Native Americans, so to speak, not using the word technically, technically, uh, to play. And the American players didn't like what we were doing with the Russians because they were the Russians were coming over and were winning a lot of prizes, but uh, we didn't allow them to sabotage our efforts. And then I tried to get the Pogar sisters to come over. That was a big deal with Alan and me. And uh, we never could quite swing the thing with uh, with the father, uh, who was a difficult Hungarian to negotiate with. But we came close. We almost got, uh, of course, uh, uh, you, whatever, whatever it was, Susha uh, uh, yeah. came over by herself later. Uh, voluntarily, but uh, we wanted all three of them, and we almost got them. And of course, we were most interested in Judith. Uh, yeah, they were very clear. It was a very close deal. Wow, but that, that would have been amazing. Um, yeah, that would have been amazing. 
I mean, now, of course, uh, <coughs> uh, now at least uh, they're bringing over a lot of good foreign players, uh, and uh, that's a continuation of the initiative. But they've got more money, and they've, you know, they've been very good at it. A very successful effort. Yeah, I mean, and also obviously players like Nakamura, I mean, Caruana, they do quite well without being brought over. I mean, Nakamura, especially uh, homegrown and obviously making millions as like a chess personality. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, so was brought over. I mean, so was really doing brilliantly. And uh, and Caruana was actually half and half. But I mean, they brought him over completely. So I think that was very good also. His recent performance um, <clears throat> was really quite spectacular, although it wasn't quite uh, in the same category as winning the first seven games in that uh, challenges thing that he did a few years ago. So you're still yeah. following the top tournaments? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, I followed the recent World Championship, which was tremendously exciting. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Uh, so a lot of people weren't as excited for that one. Were you excited going in? Not going in, you know, I, I was rooting for Ding all along for some reason that I can't figure out, but uh, I uh, didn't know that it was going to be that uh, amazing a match, but, you know, I was rooting for Ding, and every time Ding would get clobbered and then he'd come back, and it was really, you know, so it was just, uh, you know, I was just on edge, and I play was playing over the, you know, I was watching the last, game, the fourth game of the tiebreak, you know, while it was going on. Uh, so it was really, it was thrilling, actually. Yeah, yeah, so much fun to watch. Do you ever watch the broadcast, or do you mainly just play through the moves? Well, I was watching the broadcast in that case. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was live. It wasn't the commentary. I was just watching the moves as they were made. Mm-hmm. And and Jim, now that you're based in Great Britain, I know you founded like a kids chess club over there. Um, are, do you do you follow the British chess scene pretty closely as well? Well, I used to, uh, you know, in the uh, five years ago, I was driving all around England playing in weekend tournaments, and I do okay, but uh, you know, not terribly well, but uh, not too badly. And then I even qualified for the British Rapids at eighty nine. Uh, at age 89, uh, or maybe I was 88 at the time, probably. But, um, yeah, so, but I got clobbered in the finals because I just wasn't fast enough and wasn't good enough. But, uh, uh, but I, you know, I'm still, uh, I'm still following the British. This year I didn't qualify. And my chess between the ages of 89 and 88 and 89 has definitely has definitely gone down. I mean, I'd say I was probably uh, as a Rapids player, I was probably would have been rated about 23, 75 or something when I was 88, and now I'm probably 2300. But uh, uh, but I'm still, uh, you know, I can still beat uh, low-level grandmasters and. And I can still play good chess on occasion. It's just that I get tired more easily. Yeah, totally understandable. And Jim, over the years, what has been your approach to studying chess? Are you are you do you just learn from your games? Have you read a lot of books? Uh, how do you keep up? 
I don't. I mean, I just play. I'm not, uh, you know, I've lost all grasp of theory. I do play over the world championship games and, you know, the challenges games and <clears throat> the games that you see on uh, on the light chess and so on. But uh, I don't study theory at all. I mean, I don't read new in chess, although I subscribed to it for many years. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm sort of a novice when it comes to chess nowadays. I'm an amateur. And what about when you were, I mean, obviously you've had a busy professional life all along, um, but when you were a professional, was there anything you did in terms of like maintenance to your game? No, I didn't have any time for that. I, you know, I lost, I lost all track of theory. So, I mean, there was a big, there was a big abyss when, you know, 30 years worth of theory just went by me. And uh, by the time, you know, I came back and started playing a little more, I just uh, didn't have the knowledge that was necessary in the preparation. Now it's necessary to, you know, play at top level, on a, leaving my age aside, of course, because you think more slowly, your fingers move more slowly and whatnot. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, but I can, I can still, I still enjoy it tremendously. That's the point. Yeah, for sure. And what would you say? I mean, I'm amazed... Obviously, like I'm always amazed uh, talking to players who have accomplished as much as you have, but especially given from what you've said, how little you were you were able to put into to studying. Um, what what would you say your strength as a player was, Jim? Well, I was a I was really a very good tactician. You know, it's a, like uh, like I said, though, until Bobby came along, I could I didn't think that anyone could outcombine me. And was that and that was something you felt came naturally to you, or did yeah, you? Yeah, it just skill came you... natural. It just came naturally. Amazing. I, was, I really could see things quickly and fast and accurately, but Bobby could see one move beyond that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was the problem. But uh, even with Rashevsky, whose tactics were usually very cute one movers, uh, <clears throat> but Rashevsky, of course, had a a deep positional understanding of chess but he was he was no theoretician that's for sure i mean he was always uh playing second fiddle to the russians in that regard and but uh but he was a natural chess genius i mean there's no taking that away from Rzhevsky. and were you doing much in terms of like blindfold trading like if you read a book do you actually have the chess set out or would you generally uh just read it no, I have it just set out. I play games over on the board, <clears throat> not even on a computer. I play them on a chessboard. But, okay. uh, you know, I never was a great blindfold player. I used to be able to play two Rapids games, uh, you know, blindfolded. Uh, but I was never a blindfold specialist, and I was never particularly good at it. Uh, and I, you know, I can see the board... I can I can read a chess game, but I prefer it's not the way I think about it. I tend to want to see it on the board. Okay. Yeah. And Jim, as we look now, obviously chess is, into my mind, more popular than than ever. Uh, having lived through the Fisher Broom, do you do you feel that way as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, Queen's Gambit certainly was a big success. Uh, uh, and uh, I know a little bit about the background of that, and I, uh, 
you know, and I'm delighted. I've got a, I've got a couple of uh, <clears throat> of uh, grandchildren who are, you know, wife's children, wife's uh, grandchildren, and, uh, and I, uh, you know, I, they all seem to be interested in chess, or like, they don't play chess, but they're at least interested in it, you know, and their group is interested. Their cohorts from that generation are interested in it. So there's a real there's a real thing about chess as a computer game as a you know, as something that's part of their lives these days, which is very nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really nice to see. And obviously chess seems to be well fitted for the online world. Uh and um yeah, it's a, really popular with uh the youth as well. So it's a, nice to see across the board. Um, Jim, I was reviewing my notes and I, I had one other story I wanted to, to ask you about. When I One of the times I interviewed uh, Grandmaster Andy Soltis, he described uh, the New York State 1963 tournament. After mm. your game with him, he said that uh, Fisher sat and joined you guys and went over the game. What do, you, do you remember that tournament? Yeah, of course I remember that. That's a nice game I played with Soltis where I, I had some innovation, Bishop, to... It was bishop to g1 for black and this is in a uh knight to f3 sicilian uh, i mean knight f6 sicilian sorry uh on the uh, second move but uh yeah i had prepared that and i <coughs> and i beat andy in it and then fisher uh fisher came over it wasn't it was it was actually at the marshall chess club a week later or something and uh, you know, I showed him this, and Fisher laughed at the whole thing, and he said the upper, the opening was crap, and that uh, you know, I said I had prepared it, I had spent twelve hours preparing that move, and uh, or that line, which ended up with the innovation bishop to g1, attacking the rook's pawn on h2, and. Uh, you know, Fisher said, well, I could just beat you like this. And uh, I could have seen the whole thing in five seconds. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wasn't particularly gratified by that. But uh, but nevertheless, I beat Saltus the only time I ever beat him. And and so, uh, you know, it was very nice. It was only a, it was a 30-minute game, as I recall, though. Okay. It wasn't a, it wasn't a normal, uh, some normal time limit. I'm guessing thirty-minute games weren't weren't so common in those days. Well, that was one of the earlier ones. That was some tournaments up in Poughkeepsie or somewhere uh, where uh, where uh, we played it in thirty minutes. I think this guy may have won it. I forget. Uh, he was a natural for that speed limit. And, and yeah. you, were you? Uh, how did your fast game compare to your slow slower time control game? Well, I uh, I used to think of myself as a stronger fast player than I was a slow player, but it wasn't really true. Uh, I won the U.S. Speed uh, Tournament, which was held at the Open, so it wasn't the strongest speed tournament in the world. But uh, but I won it once or twice, I think twice. Uh, whereas in the U.S. Championships, I think I finished third four times or something, four or five times, four times, and I finished fourth three times or something like that. And then I had two others where I finished seventh and the last one where I finished last. 
which was my last one. But uh, so I had a great record in the uh, U.S. Championships, and I I really could hold my own with anybody there, as it turned out over the years. You know, so I had a I had a really excellent record in the U.S. Championships, which was better than my than, than my rapids playing, which was never that well organized uh, in those days. Yeah, I know that uh, Donaldson had a statistic in uh, Bobby Fischer and his world. You were one of only two non-grandmasters to have a plus score in the U.S. Championship, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I had much more than a plus score. I mean, I had a, you know, I had a, I was finishing in the top of the U.S. Championships. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he mentioned that as well, to be clear. But, uh, but I mean, it does show that... Uh, it shows how strong you were. And I know that it was harder to get the Grandmaster title in those days. Was was that, I mean, obviously you were GM strength. So is that something you even cared about or was it just not a priority? Well, it was not an issue because, I mean, in order to get it, you had to play, you know, you had to play in strong tournaments overseas on a regular basis. and uh, And I didn't have the time to do any such thing. <clears throat> so, I mean, it was never an issue for me. I just was playing chess. It would have been nice. I automatically became an IM from qualifying for Porterush, but, uh, but, uh, and I would have liked to have been a GM, but to be a GM, you have to be a professional chess player. Yeah. Yeah. Th- these you days know, it's was... slightly easier, but, but yeah, I mean, in those days there were like probably a hundred grandmasters in the world at some point so um, yeah that's right we'll be back in a minute to wrap things up with i am jim sherwin and we are back well jim this has been fantastic i really hope you can uh write your book if if you were to do so are there any standout stories that that we haven't covered here today <laughs> well, I hope there are because otherwise it wouldn't constitute a book. But uh, I think the uh, "How Time Flies" is the best story. <laughs> that one, <laughs> that one is a good story. Yeah, that's a great story. And in terms of relationships, I mean, you mentioned you hadn't seen Fisher since you were thirty. Do you have any special, like any friendships you treasure above others from all of uh, the chess legends you've known and played? Well, I was great friends with Arthur Bisquire. I mean, you know, he was, Arthur was a real mensch, and, uh, <clears throat> and I was, uh, you know, and in those later years, I used to hate Larry Evans, but then when he when he married his German croupier at, uh, from uh, from Las Vegas, uh, Larry, uh, a good woman, changed his life. And uh, and I liked Larry very much in his later, you know, in those later years. Uh, and uh, and I loved Donald Byrne. I mean, Donald was a sweetheart of the first water and really was sort of somewhat multifarious. He was sort of an English professor. I wasn't quite so keen on Robert, but I got along with him fine. Uh, you know, I'd say that... Uh, Donald was somebody that I cherished, and and actually Dr. Lasker was somebody that I got to know whom I never had thought, uh, you know, would be a great friend. But I, 
you know, I treasured my uh, relationship with Dr. Lasker, and indeed, I spoke. Uh, I spoke at the funerals of both uh, of both Donald and of Dr. Lasker. Uh, I'm talking about the American Lasker, or he wasn't American, but he became one. Edward, yeah, uh, yeah, and. Uh, you know, so I think those were probably, and Ed Morrow, Ed Morrow Madness was a good friend, and Elliot Hurst was a very close friend, and all of my Columbia chess team members were good friends also. Uh, so, I mean, my friendships were uh, were largely amongst chess players, and, uh, and of, uh, you know, the top people of my generation, that was... Uh, that was really uh, was very wonderful to have those friends who were all unfortunately, I think every one of them is gone now. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, a lot of uh, lives well led, but um, but yeah, it's uh, unfortunate. And Jim, what about uh, a favorite? Do you have of all your games? Do you have a personal favorite? Uh, well, I guess. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, have to, hold on, I'll try to answer that question. We know which one you get asked about the most. You know, certainly, of course, from uh, some point or other, the, the game that I beat Fisher where he missed the maiden four is probably uh, something nice. Uh, the game I beat Ruszewski is a very nice game. I think probably I've been beat Benke a couple of times. I had some good games against Lombardi. Uh, the game I beat Evans was very nice. Um, but probably the game that I beat Gligerich was the best. Uh, that's the one that I'd say is my favorite. Um, <clears throat> that's a beautiful game. Uh, and a very thematic game. Uh, so, I, and even after I, after the middle game, the end game is very nice also, which was not such a clear end game after the adjournment. But, uh, yeah, so I'd say the game with Gligar just is maybe my favorite of them all. Okay, I'll, really, I'll be sure. That's to, a really great game. Okay, I'll be sure to check rush. it out and make a link so listeners can, can watch it as well. Did you review the game with Gligarich afterwards, Jim? Uh, no, because it was adjourned and he, you know, after he lost, he just, uh, he just went his way. It was uh, the next morning and he didn't review games that were adjourned very much. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't review it with him, but, uh, but it was, uh, that was really an exceptionally good game. Okay, well, I will be sure that one I'm not familiar with, so I'll be sure to check it out. But Jim, this has been fantastic. I can't, I can't express enough how how amazed I am by your your recall. Both uh, some people remember chess games well, and some people remember events well, and somehow you, at 89 years of age, remember both very well. So it's, uh, it's been... <laughs> you're, very, you're very kind, but it's slipping away. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time with me. I really appreciate it, and I've enjoyed it too. Oh, thank you. Well, we, we all hope you write that book, Jim. Thank, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye.
Podcast Network.